0: Welcome to the Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hello there, Mr. Amron. Hi, Mr. Bast. Welcome to the Practice Podcast. Today we are going to be talking about litigation, but really about the prospect of litigation. And that is for non-litigation attorneys, what to do when litigation might be on the horizon. We don't always know, but where there's a potential dispute brewing or an actual dispute brewing and a non-litigator is thinking, hmm, this might end up in litigation. What should a non-lawyer, corporate transactional lawyer do? I don't know that we can really put them always in order, but what would be the list
1: of things that non-litigators should be looking for? Besides calling you first. (laughs) You know, look, there's always that fine line when you're just not sure whether something is, an issue is going to get to litigation. And by litigation, it doesn't necessarily mean that it ends up in a court proceeding or an arbitration or something like that. To me, there's all this pre-suit Litigation, too, where you go back and forth and you write demand letters, people stake out positions. If there's an inkling of it, that there's a dispute to me is sort of when litigation counsel should be brought in because, and I know that the self-serving, right? Because we litigate. But candidly, if you're in receipt of a complaint, your client gets a complaint, or they're ready to file a complaint, assuming there's enough time and planning, it's always better to be well-informed and to have the, to me, it's the expertise of a litigator knowing What to anticipate pre suit, post suit, what happens, and looking at whatever documents, whatever information, whatever the dispute is from the perspective of a litigator and can sort of educate the client and co counsel or the lawyer who's referring it to better understand what's in the offing. And education and information is always best because you'll see the strengths and weaknesses in your position but you'll also see strengths and weaknesses in the other side's position and it's always better to be prepared and well informed whether you're sending out a responding to a letter or sending out your own letter and know what's coming down the line and what may come down the line for the prospect of litigation when you're sending those things
0: obviously preparation and educating both yourself and the client are going to be important features Mm -hmm. and finding a good litigator. And I I want to come back to that one. What are the steps that a non-litigator should do to do those things. Right. you know. So one example that comes to mind for me
1: is gathering documents, preserving them. <laughs> yeah, so gathering documents is a great one. Very broad, right? So within that, it's trying to figure out what the client's file system is. Do they have electronic information? Do they have hard copy paper files? What's the sort of the universe of information? Do they do email? Have they communicated via email internally or externally regarding the issue? Do they communicate on some messenger app, whether it be iMessage or text or WhatsApp, Slack or whatever it is, trying to figure out what's there and making sure that the client goes through all of that, right? Because we want to know the good stuff, right? That helps the client, but you also want to know the stuff that may be harmful. Because once you stake out positions, you want to at least know and you want the client to know what the potential ramifications are. And the client needs to know also
0: that they have to preserve all of those modes of communication, all their text messages, all of their emails, et cetera. And it's not just the client because a lot of lawyers are dealing with a company and there may be however many, 10 employees or 10,000 employees. They need to not just communicate to their client contact, but make Mm -hmm. sure the client contact communicates to everybody that's on the team or involved in this particular transaction that they also need to preserve their text because oftentimes the lead up to litigation can be months or sometimes years and people are routinely deleting text messages and whatever other communications they have personal emails sometimes they use their personal yahoo email address rather than their work email and they routinely delete those so letting people know early preserve all of your documents can be really important yeah I mean
1: there's listen there's an obligation once you know of the issue of the dispute there's an obligation to preserve all information if the destruction of documents if there is a policy in place and there's destruction of information and documents on a routine basis then that happens but if you know something is going to come up then maybe you suspend that gathering the information early it's also helpful to keep costs down later right because ultimately if there is a dispute and there's litigation or arbitration or something or even negotiation pre-suit where you're going to have to educate the lawyers If the clients gather all the information they have it, that's going to help later so that the lawyers and professionals don't have to go in and do all that stuff. And if you're not deleting, because you can never really delete a text or a message or even an email, that information is going to have to be obtained from the service provider. And that obviously raises the expenses significantly. I'm not saying that there's no discovery expense associated with gathering the electronic data or the hard copies of files, but if it's done in an orderly fashion, it's done timely when there's no pressures and it's done before things start to be deleted or destroyed through course of business, it just helps tremendously in terms of the cost factor, but also helping the lawyers as well. And you mentioned doing
0: it while it's sort of fresh and before- before there's pressure you know that also reminds me that people want to also memorialize their memories associated with the transaction. So this comes up a lot. Preserving the documents while they're fresh so everyone knows where everything is. And if two years from now to try to piece together where all the texts are, where all mm-hmm. the messages might be, would be more challenging than saying, hey, we have this. We know there's a dispute. Let's all take all this data and segregate it over here on this hard drive or wherever it is for purposes of preserving it for a dispute that we expect is on the way. But on that same token, I think it's the not just the digital records, but the uh, uh-huh human records
1: and those are those in in people's brains. Right. you know It's not easy to ask people to do this, but sitting down and either typing out their memories if they don't have them recorded or writing them down or having the attorney sit with each individual and having them tell the story. Obviously, the earlier in time, the closer in time it is to the event, the better the memory is going to be. And that, again, will be super helpful because whoever the litigator is or even the non-litigator lawyer is going to be able to have that information to know again what the strengths and weaknesses of each position is and, and where they should take things in terms of a negotiation or litigation on the dispute. We've asked a lot of clients in the early stages of a case sit down, go sit down at
0: your computer and write down Everything that transpired as much as you can sit down and remember it. I like to have each person involved sit down and write their own narrative. Do you have any thoughts about whether
1: they should do it collaboratively or each write their own narrative? These are all protected communications because it's attorney-client communication. So it's all protected. For me, I'd like to see everybody do their own. Because if I'm sitting in a room with somebody and they say, oh, remember this, and if I don't remember and I go, oh, yeah, and then I put it down. It may be perfectly okay that I don't remember it. Somebody else remembers something, I may not, and that's okay. But if I say I remember it, and then my lawyer thinks I have remembered it, not that somebody told me more recently about it. And I'm sitting in deposition, and somebody asked me a question, and I say, yeah, I know. And they say, well, how did you know you didn't even start at the company at until that after yeah. that issue mm-hmm. had occurred? And so... I'm a big proponent of, tell me your story individually, and then we can sit down and go through the notes together collectively and figure out where the issues are. It's a
0: great point because people remember things and they're not sure. It's like from your childhood, I remember things. And I always question, do I remember that from the event or do I remember it because I saw a picture of it in my parents' family photo albums? And so the same thing happens with these types of events. Do they remember because it occurred or they remember it because somebody told them about it. On that same point if you have two or three people each memorializing their recollection of the series of events and you put them together you also may find inconsistencies and so it's better to sort out identify and sort out those inconsistencies early to figure out who's right, who's wrong, where are the differences arising you know, ordinarily we can do that by other records. Take a look at their calendars. One guy thought the meeting was on Tuesday, the other one said it was Thursday and, and we figured
1: out it was Wednesday. And just to put a point on that which is clients are sometimes hesitant to tell us everything. We have to know everything, good, bad, and different, because we can deal with it. And what we always tell our clients, right, is we don't want to learn about an, a fact in deposition, in court, in a meeting with the other side. <laughs> tell us in everything. In front of another person. Right. You never want to hear a fact
0: right. for the first time in front of another person. Right.
1: Tell us everything. That's okay. Listen, not every fact is necessarily going to be great for you. That's okay. That's why it's a dispute. But tell us everything and we can deal with it. If you don't tell us, it's going to be much more difficult to do that later. So on that topic of you're preparing
0: for the dispute, you've gathered documents, you've had people memorialize memories. One other thought that comes to mind is if the dispute is something that arises out of an agreement, maybe you need to take a look at the agreement or document a contract.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, if there is a contract or a document at the center of the dispute, a transactional lawyer may have one view of the document and the provisions. Likely they drafted it. Right. Or if they drafted it, or maybe they were part of the drafting process, they're going to have a different spin on it than a litigator would. How's a court or jury going to look at this. How's this going to play? And an arbitration perhaps. And so that's why it's good to have. Ideally, I'd love to be a part of conversations when a transaction is being put together as a litigator because, hey, here's the potential pitfalls and what may happen. But I, I recognize that people don't necessarily want to have that when they're going into a deal. I think they should. But if you see the dispute, a dispute has arisen, or you think internally there's a dispute, a litigator is going to have a different view towards what could happen if a dispute bubbles up and goes to whether it be, again, pre-suit litigation, court, or arbitration. And so to me, it's not just the non-litigator lawyer looking at a document and saying, oh, here's what it means. It absolutely could mean what that lawyer is saying for sure, but here's how it'll play in court is a different spin. So looking at the documents there, but then taking a look, as we talked about a few minutes ago, looking at any other documents that may relate to that transaction or that the document, at the center of the dispute and knowing, by the way, as a litigator, knowing whether or not if you get into litigation, all the other stuff would be admissible right. as evidence. You know, it may or may not be if you're litigating over documents. So those are all sorts of things that a litigator may have a different spin on, a different view than a non-litigator. But a
0: non-litigator also looking at a, a potential dispute brewing will want to look at the contract to ascertain, is there some notice requirement? Are we required to give them a 60-day lead time? Right. And then if they wait three weeks or whatever it is while they're interviewing litigation yeah. firms and now the notice has to start and everything is triggered later or they They learn that, oh, we've been interviewing lawyers in Florida, and this litigation has to take place in Austria,
1: (laughs) (laughs) whatever it is.
0: It's a good idea to look at the contract and figure out what are the requirements for the dispute. Maybe there's an arbitration clause. Or a a pre-mediation clause before right. Right, Exactly. exactly. Take a look at the contract and figure out what are the requirements. Another thing that comes to mind is, considering litigation, is there some insurance? that might cover this type of claim, right? Whether on your side
1: or on the other side.
0: Yeah, so maybe the client has insurance that will cover this particular type of dispute. There's receivables insurance. There's all types of insurance available. Or as you mentioned, does the opposing party have insurance coverage? Can you get a copy of that policy to figure out what the coverage is? Maybe somebody else involved, an advisor or consultant, maybe there are accountants involved. Maybe the accountants have insurance right. that might cover the claim. So consider, is there insurance that might be applicable? And do you need to have a good understanding of what that coverage is? Isn't that something that as a litigator, you're going to be looking at yeah, early always.
1: on as well? Yeah, always. What's the source of, A, a source of recovery or a source of payment? If our client is potentially on the hook, source of payment of potentially attorney's fees for our client if there is insurance policy. We're always looking towards that. And those are the questions that we want to ask as well and look at those issues. Again, both sides. The insurance might, in certain instances, drive the way you frame your
0: claim. So if you're pursuing a target that maybe has limited resources, but they have insurance, you want to frame your claim in a manner that fits within the confines of the coverage.
1: Yes, of course. Look, you can't make things up, but you know when you plead certain claims that if there's coverage, you want to know what that coverage is and what the limits of that coverage are when you're framing your claim in the dispute. And no, listen, this is not something that's covered. You've got to tell your client that. Or, yeah, I think there's coverage here. There may be a battle with the insurance carrier. But ultimately, maybe there's going to be coverage or yeah, there's coverage. Don't worry about it. So that's something you need to know, especially when you're drafting a lawsuit, even sending a demand letter before you file a lawsuit. Because if you send a demand letter and put all this stuff, this beautiful stuff in there that you really don't need, that really doesn't frame your claim It's sexy, it's going to create leverage. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? Now they're going to send that to their insurance carrier. And then if you ultimately get to litigation or you're negotiating, the carrier says, yeah, I mean, you pled all this stuff. There's no coverage for it. When in reality, you don't need that. Those are good things to know and to figure out before you even send anything out. I mean, the idea here is to figure out the practical, efficient way to get the dispute resolved, no matter what side you're on for the client. Court and even arbitration is super expensive and takes a long time. And how can we as lawyers work with our clients to, at least from our perspective, be as efficient and practical as we can be, keeping in mind what the ultimate goal is of the client and not losing sight of that. It's very easy for lawyers, and I see it all the time, a complaint gets filed and it's a one-count breach of contract complaint or two-count breach of contract complaint, and they haul off and send 100 requests for production. That's where the expense is because now you're getting all this information that you really don't need. So, figure out what you really need in order to establish the claim or defend the claim.
0: Then, what's the goal you're hoping to achieve? For corporate transactional lawyers who are facing the potential for litigation, we have one, preserve the documents, two, preserve the memories, three, take a look at the relevant documents for purposes of determining notice provisions and jurisdiction venue, things like that. Four, take a look at potential insurance coverage. And then you mentioned it in the beginning, find a good litigator. Five would be find a good litigator.
1: For sure. And I know in big law, the transactional lawyers or non-litigators can get up, walk down the hall or elevator or stairs, whatever, whatever the office looks like, and go into a litigator's office and talk to them. And that's super easy. Smaller firms, boutiques who are specialists don't have that. And so, yeah, the idea is get a litigator on board early. And yes, it's going to increase the cost. Obviously, you bring another lawyer in, but it may save money in the long run and may help the client get a better result in the end. And is it just enough to find someone that litigates? No, I mean, there's thousands of lawyers, (laughs) right? But it's, it's finding a lawyer who has the experience and expertise maybe in the specific area, if it's not a commercial matter, if it's a patent or tax issue, obviously you need that kind of litigator. But if it's somebody who shares your, as the referring lawyer, but also the client shares your vision and view of what the client ultimately is looking for, they don't view this next client as a cash cow. They have a good reputation in the community for that. And they've been there. They've done it. Sure. And they've litigated these issues in court or in arbitration, and they understand it. Right. Experience,
0: resources, expertise in the particular area, if it requires that. You know, we could probably do another podcast on just this topic alone, but also are they a plaintiff's lawyer or are they a defense lawyer? Because a lot of defense law firms are not very good on the plaintiff side, and it's a very different type of practice. A defense law firm is just playing the delay game in many instances. Yeah, poking and holes, right? And poking holes, and a plaintiff's right. firm is a driver and pushing and
1: moving, right. and has their right. foot so, on the accelerator. Right, so a plaintiff has to prove every element of a claim plus damages. A defense lawyer has to poke holes in the elements or some of the elements, or some of the damage, you know. So by no means am I saying that on the defense side is easier than the plaintiff side. I'm just saying it's very different. They're different. And so there are some that do both, I mean, and do it very effectively and are very good at it. But there's some that really specialize in one or the other. And so it's good to know that.
0: All right, so for all you non-litigators out there, preserve the docs, preserve the memories, check the insurance, take a look at the contract, and please find a good litigator like Brett Amroth. Thanks, Brett. Have a good day, thanks. For more information on this show and other resources, visit FastAmron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at
1: FastAmron.com.